This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Well, I am excited um, because over the next uh, month and a half, over five Sundays, uh, we're going to do a new series called Ready, Set, Go. And I have to be honest with you, some of the inspiration around this uh, came from my, my daughter, uh, who in the last couple of weeks has been running track and field. They did their, their school-wide meet, and then this past Tuesday, uh, she did the city meet. And I don't know about you, but it's exciting watching your own kids run around that track, or in, in her case, she did a lot with long jump and triple jump. But I have news for you this morning as a church that Hannah Jeffs, is the long jump champion of the city. City champ in the long jump, and she came second in triple jump. But I want to just, before I jump into this message, I want to tell you the other event that got me going was the 4 by 100. And the grade 7, 8 girls lined up to go. And Hannah started off, we got, I, I wish we could get pictures out there, but we got pictures of her right at the, at the start. She's ready to go. She was in the first position, handed off to, you know, the girls, and they made it around. They not only won, but the second place team were 40 meters behind them. And I was like, whoa. And you know how you're going? You, we were standing beside the teachers as they were running around, and you could see the teachers getting all nervous, like, oh, hand off the baton, good, hand off the baton, good, hand off the baton, good, and Boom! And it was the next one, boom, gone, it kept going. And, and I, I think it's prophetic in so many ways because I believe like that the baton passing that is happening in our church is just like, boom, and we're on to the next thing, and that next person is going to take it to the next level. And I'm grateful for the foundations that have been laid and all the work that's gone into laying the foundations in this church and all the dif- different departments of this church. But how many know that you can't win a race unless you pass the baton? In the 4 by 100 you disqualify yourself for a couple of reasons. Number one, you don't pass the baton, or you pass it too late, or you get out of your lane. And so I want to encourage you guys, as you are tracking with the things of God for your life, stay in your lane. Don't try to be somebody else. Hang on to the baton as long as you're supposed to, but the moment you're not supposed to have it anymore, pass it on. Can I, can I tell you something that's completely unrelated to the message, but I'm going to tell you something that I've learned the last couple of years. The greatest joy that you'll ever have is not in fulfilling your own part of the race, but is seeing everyone win. You have a part to play, and it's awesome. We need it. But there's something that happens when you see the people you've passed the baton to become more successful than you, go further than you. It just, it honestly blesses my heart. There's a phrase that Charlie Sweet often uses when you're talking to him, and I've heard him even pray this over people, but I just love this phrase. He basically says this, everything in life, you should do everything that you can do to make sure that your ceiling is someone else's dance floor. I love that. Because that's our heart for our church. But as I was watching these races over the last couple of weeks, this thought started to stir up in me about the mission of Christ. And I think what I loved about the 4 by 100 this past week was they had a mission, they were determined, they were focused, they were practicing their exchanges, they were 
pumping each other up. They were ready to go. And what I saw was a group of people on mission to win a race. Not only did they do it, they blew the competition out of the water. But I want, to, I want you to know today that we are on mission. Collectively, but we're also on mission individually. And so I want you to understand today, and hopefully over the next number of weeks, that there are certain things that have to be in place for us to completely fulfill the mission of Christ in our life. And I'm going to call them pillars. You can call them keys, thoughts. You can call them whatever you want. But I'm going to call them pillars. Because I believe they're pillars that we need to stand on. They need to be the foundation of our lives. And so I want to start this morning with reading um, a theme verse that we're going to keep tracking with throughout the next couple of weeks. And it's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. And it says this. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else all about it, and then missing out myself. I don't know about you, but we've been handed a baton 2,000 years ago by Jesus himself. And he said to us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you to the ends of the age. You have to understand the baton is already in our hands. It's up to us now what we do with it. We can stand at the start line, the gun can go off, and we can still stand there. But you know what I've realized in races like that? If you're still standing there after the gun goes off, you look strange. Can I be honest? You look strange. The other thing that we could do is we can run ahead of the the gun, and guess what? You're disqualified. So what I want you to understand is we have a mission that God has given us. He's given it to you individually, but he's also given it to us as a church. There's a mission that Impact Church has in this city. And I don't know about you, I've never been more excited about that mission than I am right now. Zig Ziglar, I don't know who came up with his name or where his parents are. I don't have no idea. Um, I think that they should have really thought through the naming of his first name. Maybe call him John, Bob, I don't know, something other than Zig when his last name is Ziegler, but hey, whatever works, right? But he said this, he said, outstanding people have one thing in common, an absolute sense of mission. Outstanding people have one thing in common, an absolute sense of mission. And this is what this series is all about. So I want to encourage you, as you think through your own mission, as you think through the context of the greater mission that's part of Impact Church, I want you to think in your mind, get ready, Get set, it's time to go. Amen? So the first pillar I'm going to talk about this morning is what I call passion. Passion's an interesting word. Um, Obviously, we can misuse that word. We can uh, understand it in its definition in a way that is sensual or, 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 in a sense, ungodly. But passion speaks about a longing and a desire for something that absolutely eats you up. It's something that causes you to think about it all the time, you dream about it, you talk about it, you pray about it, you sing about it, it never goes out of your mind because you are constantly 
tied into this thing. William, uh, Wesley Duell uh, said this, and I love this. He said, all other passions build upon or flow from your passion for Jesus. A passion for souls grows out of a passion for Christ. A passion for mission builds upon a passion for Christ. The most crucial danger to a Christian, whatever his or her role, is to lack a passion for Christ. The most direct route to personal renewal and new effectiveness is a new, all-consuming passion for Jesus. Lord, give us this passion, whatever the cost. Here's the problem with passion. Here's the problem. People who are passionate make people feel uncomfortable. No one left yet. All right, that's good. <laughs> yep. Can I tell you a story? Um, yes. Okay, thank you. I grew up in a deacon-possessed church. <laughs> Gary, that one was for you. What I mean by that is a bunch of people overseeing the affairs of the church that I don't think had ever met Jesus a day in their life. Tell me how that lines up. And for years, God would start to move. And a majority of people would start to shut it down. And then God would start to move. And people would shut it down. And then God would start to move. It's amazing how he just kept trying to work on it. It's like he's hitting the rock with a hammer over and over and over again. Maybe I get through to these people. The problem is, is in that church, they all intermarried. So all the people that had a problem all married the other people that had a problem, and they all got on the board, and they all just kept snuffing out every move of God that had ever happened. Of course, that never, ever happens in a church today. Ever. But here's what was something that I recognized. God will always offend your mind in order to reach your heart. How do I know? Because I was one of the deacon-possessed crowd that would look at everything that was going on and question it, challenge it. That's not of God. That's not of God. Until one day... God found me in the second last pew at King Street Pentecostal Church, January, third week of January, 1997, and he found me there. And can I say, my life was never the same after that moment. And for the first time in my life, I turned my brain off, put it aside, and said, from my heart, God, I need you. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing the religious game because it is getting me nowhere. The only thing I feel is frustration and guilt and shame and I just keep getting beat up and I can't deal with this anymore, Lord. And can I say to you this morning, God isn't looking for you He's not looking for you to be perfect. He's just looking for you to have a passion for the person that is the only one that can have the ability to transform your life. That's it. And some of you are like, well, I don't know what that's going to look like. And I have news for you. 
He's going to continuously put you around people that are passionate and doing things that you're not comfortable with until he offends your mind so much that he reaches your heart. Now, part of the role of us as pastors is that we have to challenge and correct things that are of the flesh. And we will always do that. I just want you to know, we're not here to be weird. Actually, as a matter of fact, weird bothers me. But passion does not. And how many know that there's a difference between passion and weird? Okay, we good? All right. I love passion. I don't think anybody likes weird. We good? All right, okay. All right, all right, all right. I want you to read this. Uh, I want to read this verse with you here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. And let us all advance together to reach this victory prize, following one path with one passion. Following one path with one passion. This is what the 4 by 100 girls did. They were on one path, one lane, with one passion to win. And man, did they ever. <laughs> it was awesome. I think if you ask any athlete today or any member of the Toronto Raptors, you would understand that it is that passion for what they do that sustains them through every situation, whether good, hard, bad, or indifferent, or everything in between. That's what an athlete does. They have their eyes on the prize. They're focused. They're disciplined. They understand that there's, a, there's something that I'm going after, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. I want to challenge you this morning with one very simple thought. I want you to want God so bad that if, you're, if you didn't have a God encounter, your life will just cease to exist. You've got to wake up every morning thinking, God, if I don't meet with you today, I'm toast. Because I cannot do this on my own. That's my heart. It's the same passion that inspired Jesus to fulfill his mission on the earth. I want you to listen to this. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Jesus passionately determined to leave for Jerusalem and let nothing distract him from fulfilling his mission there. For the time for him to be lifted up was drawing near. The time for him to die was coming close. But nothing distracted him from that passion. So what does he want our response to be? It's very simple. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we live or die, we make it our life's passion to live our lives pleasing to him. That's it. That's it. So here's what I've been thinking through. I'm, I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I'm taking a look at my life. When I've been passionate for you, what were kind of the symptoms of that? And when I was not passionate for you, what was the symptoms of that? And is there some sort of correlation between my journey and other people's journey? Or is there a correlation between my journey that I've experienced and the journey even of believers in the, in the Bible, the disciples in particular? What are the connection points? And so as I've been thinking through this, I've been landing on one idea. I'm not saying that this is the only idea. But I'm saying it's one idea, and I think it's a significant idea. And if you've been a Christian for longer than two years, this is for you. If you've been a Christian less than two years, I don't want you to become like the people that no longer want God. I want you to become like the people that are so passionate for God, they'll do whatever it takes to get there. Okay. So here's what I thought about. Here's the question I thought of. So what causes us to lose our passion for God? I think it's a legitimate question. I think it's a question that we have to kind of wrestle with. 
not just as a church, but individually. And as I thought through this whole concept, I kept thinking probably the best analogy or the best illustration to use is marriage. I'm not saying it's the only illustration, but I think it's a good one. Think about this for a second. In any relationship or in any marriage, when it starts, it's awesome for the most part. Not in every case scenario. It's exciting. It's an adventure. You have hope for the future. You think that, you know, life's going to be just amazing. You have joy and belief in what's coming down the road. And then what happens for a number of couples is life takes over. Your relationship becomes routine. You lose that spark. And your spouse becomes common to you. When you are overly familiar with somebody, it has the potential to become common. It's routine. It's, how it, it's just how it is. Right? And I think most of us would agree with that. And this is the same thought or principle, I believe, that robs us of our passion for God. It's the same thing. The longer you've been a Christian the greater potential for you to see God as common. Because he's just always going to be there, right? You just, you know, show up to church once a week or a couple times a month and you're good to go, right? Everything's good. But if we're not intentionally, passionately pursuing God and the things of God, it's only a matter of time before that thing that was this amazing spark, that amazing idea is now just common, routine. That's how it's always going to be. But at the age of 22, when I had that encounter with God, I literally went from religion to relationship. I don't know how else to say it. I could put a different spin on it, but I went from religion to relationship. I realized through the experience that if my view of God doesn't change how I think of him and change the way that I live, then to me, he's just common. It has to change. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is as we're processing through this message, if you feel like God has just become common to you, here's what I want you to do. Don't accept it. Don't accept it as normal. Don't accept it as this is how it's going to be for the rest of your life. One of the things I remember at 22 is I took a good hard look in the mirror and I realized my life was awful. Everything that could go wrong was going wrong. Everything internally was a mess. If you could kind of get a picture of my internal thoughts and my soul, all you would see is just one twister, one one uh, tornado after another of confusion and of frustration and of anger and bitterness and resentment. That's all you saw. But what I was good at was putting on a smile or good at coming to church and making it look like I had it all together. How many have ever tried that one? Only to realize that I couldn't play the game anymore. I couldn't do it. You know, when you see those passionate people And the thoughts that are going through your mind is, Jesus, strike them down dead. (laughs) But you're all thinking, I would never think that. You liar! 
You, of course, think that because they annoy you. When you're not in a good place, anyone that's passionate is driving you crazy. Well, they haven't gone through life. They haven't gone through what I've gone through. If they'd gone through what I've gone through, then they wouldn't be like that. No way. Am I the only one? Because that's exactly what I thought. I was looking at these people being touched by God. And I'm looking at them going... I was mad. Maybe I'm just ungodly. Maybe you guys are all perfect. I don't know. I was mad. I was angry. I was thinking some of the most ungodly thoughts you could possibly think of and still call yourself a Christian. I was thinking of ways that I could go on Facebook in 97 when it didn't exist and tell other people about what I thought about them. Because they drove me crazy. Until one night, I sat in that pew, and something shifted in my thinking. And this is how it went. The people I'm angry at are the people that are experiencing what I need. So what am I going to do with it? And you only have two choices. You live in pride and never admit what's going on on the inside. Because that's just wrong. Because I have to just keep up this front. I have to just keep going because I can't, you know, I will not surrender my pride. There's no way. Or you do what I did that night. And I humbled myself. And in that pew, second last pew at King Street Pentecostal Church, middle section on the left side. I cried out to God. And I said, God, I can't can't keep doing this. And then I prayed the stupidest, crazy, simple prayer I've ever prayed in my life. I literally looked up to the, the roof at King Street, and I said, God, if you're really real, show me. Oh, man, did he ever... (laughs) it was so crazy they had three people carrying me out three and a half hours later because I couldn't walk I was overwhelmed by the presence of God like where did Cameron go and so the, the joke for the next number of months was where's Cameron he's under a pew somewhere we just have to go look for him after the service and see where he is. And you don't know where he's landing. There was one service I'll still remember. I don't, I don't actually remember it, but people told me I did this. Where I got touched by the Spirit of God. I went down. I went backwards over a pew, and my shoes went flying up in the air back about five rows behind me. I don't remember this. But someone was kind enough to find my shoes and put them on my feet while I was out in the presence of God. I don't remember. But they tell me after, and I was like, okay. But you know what happened? I swallowed my pride, and I said, the things that I'm passionately pursuing right now, if I was honest, which was anger. I was passionately pursuing anger. You can say it whatever way you want, but that's what I was doing. And the moment I said, God, I'm going to passionately pursue you, my life transformed. My life has never been the same since. I got things I got to work on and work through, but I tell you, my life has never been the same since. And here's what I came to the conclusion of that night. 
here's what I came to the conclusion of. I wasn't in love with God. I was in love with what he could do for me. And because he wasn't doing it for me, I was angry at him. And then I realized that night that God had become common to me. Just become common. I love how John Piper puts it in his book, God is the Gospel. This one got me when I read this. Oh, my goodness. If you can have heaven with no sickness, no pain, all your friends, all your favorite activities, but Jesus wasn't there, could you be satisfied? And the reality is, across the church world, I'm not necessarily saying impact, but across the church world worldwide, there's far too many, quote-unquote, Christians that would be satisfied with that arrangement. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Can I say something to you this morning? God longs for you more than you could ever long for Him. He longs to see you fulfill the purpose that He has for you more than you do. But He only wants you to do one thing. Surrender everything, put it at the cross, and follow Him. That's it. It's not easy. Simple. Here's the cross. Come on up. All right, here we go. Okay, no kidding. But it's the surrender of your own will. It's the, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow passionately you. Because I've realized in my life, all the other stuff will never satisfy. Trust me. I have tried other stuff. It didn't satisfy. Gives a momentary high, and it doesn't last. And that could be a bunch of different things for a bunch of different people. But here's what I realized that night, 22 years ago. That a casual response to Jesus means I'm going to have a casual response to his mission. But a passionate response to Jesus means that I'm going to be passionate about his mission. They're correlated, they're connected. And then it started me thinking. And I'm going to ask a big heavy question this morning. Because I think we need it. Not necessarily for us, but what I'm hoping to do is to stimulate your heart for those that don't know him outside of these four walls. Okay? That's the goal. But I want to ask this question. Here's a question someone asked of me many years ago. And when they asked it, I almost hit them. Because I was so mad. Are you ready? My spiritual papa asked me this question before my January of 1997 experience. And he irritated me when he said it. So I'm just setting you up for it. You ready? If you were charged with being a passionate follower of Christ, would they have enough evidence to convict you? And I was like, are you kidding me? The joke between him and I was, can you please go through the side door with flowers? He goes, no, son, I'm coming through the front door. I don't like the front door conversations. They don't make me feel special. But I realized something that he was doing that day. He was stimulating something in me. He was stimulating something in me. Sometimes even as parents, we need to ask our kids the tough questions. Not because we want to be mean, but because we want to stimulate something inside of them that goes, yeah, mm, 
I don't like this. I don't like where my life is at. I don't want to keep doing this. And so my goal this morning is to stimulate that thought inside of you that says, my life's good, but I can go better, and I can get to a better place if I put all of my passion, my effort, into this relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Then I wondered many years ago, ever wonder kind of what it would take for me to get there? And I asked those questions of myself. For me, I honestly believe that I needed to have a fresh vision of who Jesus was. That was it. And interestingly enough, the fresh vision of who Jesus was that day, 22 years ago, was a revelation of the Father heart of God for me. That He loves me no matter what. Didn't matter what I had to do. He loved me no matter what. But if I had a fresh revelation of God, fresh vision of God, and who He was in my life, I honestly believed if I, if I longed for that, that I would start to see the process of God, not out of a religious lens, but out of a relational lens. So when I do something wrong today, I'm actually not living in the guilt of what I did wrong, but I'm living in the godly sorrow of disappointing the person that I choose to be in relationship with and pursue. And it causes me to change. Not because of being, beating myself up. That's the enemy's goal but because I long for relationship with him. So as I thought about this fresh vision, fresh revelation of God, I thought of this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read it uh, to you. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. If you've been around church a long time, you probably have heard this passage. If you're fairly new, this is one of my most exciting, amazing chapters in the entire Bible. If if I were to handpick my favorite Old Testament book, it's this one. It's Isaiah. I love Isaiah. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I want you to catch something here. In the year that King Uzziah died, he saw a vision or had a fresh vision of the Lord. I think it's connected. It goes, above it stood seraphim, which were angelic beings. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Now, I want you to understand something here. The foundations of the building they were in were shaken not by the voice of God, but by the voice of an angel. Think about that if God were to speak then. That's why earthquakes happened when God spoke. It wasn't a building he shook, it was the whole earth. Okay, just a little side thought. So he said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's amazing to me that the moment Isaiah has this new, fresh revelation of God, the first thing that he saw what was off was the way he spoke. Can I say to you this morning, take an inventory of what you say about God and the move of God and the things of God, and it'll absolutely prove to you without a shadow of a doubt where your heart is with regards to your passion levels with God. And if that doesn't work, just take Brie and Michelle out for coffee. And don't say a word. 
just buy them whatever they want from Starbucks and sit there and let them just explode with Jesus inside of them. And by the end of it, you're either going to be running for cover or something is going to be stirred up within you. Because you're going to realize, wow, that's what I want. (laughs) All right. I want to give you a little bit of history on this Isaiah and this whole timeline. It was approximately 740 B.C. And interestingly enough, in Isaiah chapters 3, 4, and 5, um, Isaiah was basically saying, woe to all the bad people in Israel. All you people that do wrong things. All you bad people that keep doing bad things, you bad people called Israel. That was basically chapter 3, 4, and 5. He gets to chapter 6, has a fresh revelation of God, and he goes, ooh, I'm bad. Can I say to you that the moment you know your passion is right is when you're no longer concerned about what's bad in others, but you're more concerned about what's bad in you. How do I know? Because now I know God's touching your heart. If the only thing you can do is point out everything else wrong with everyone else, then the only thing that's going on is God. His voice is coming and it's bouncing off of you. And it just keeps coming and bounces off of you because you're not open to hearing what he wants to say. Can I say this? From my own journey... God always starts on the inside and then moves out. He's an inside-out God. That's who he is. That's what he does. All right. So Isaiah 6 response is, whoa, I got a problem. Okay? So Isaiah, in order to have a fresh revelation of who Jesus was, it says in verse 1, Uzziah had to die. I don't know about you, but as soon as I read that, it begs the question, well, who in the world was Uzziah? So let's find out. Okay, Second Chronicles 26, verses 1 to 4, it says, Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years of age, and made him king. Catch this. Instead of his father. Can we say offense? Okay, all right, it's already there. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. After the king arrested with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became the king He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, I'm not even going to say it because it's really weird. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Okay, so I want you to just look at those verses and pay particular attention to verse 4 for a second. I have a question for you. After reading these verses, do you think Uzziah was a good king or a bad king? It's a good king, right? goes on in verse 5, and it says, He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who was a prophet, who had understanding in the visions of God. Interesting vision again there, how your vision changed. Fresh revelation, fresh vision. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. I looked up the Hebrew word for he sought. It's actually a word that's tied together. And it literally means this. To search out, to passionately seek, and to actively investigate. So I'm going to read it again with the definition in there. As long as Uzziah sought out, passionately sought, and actively investigated the things of God, God prospered him. And now we get to verses 6 to 15. And it actually highlights all his victories. Highlights his victories in battle. It highlights that his fame spread across the land. It started talking about how the land prospered because of his faithfulness. Uh, and produced a tremendous harvest. Uh, it actually talks about how farming was booming 
The economy was booming. I don't know about you, but this sounds good. And then verse 16 comes. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Another word for that is proud. To his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So to be lifted up, again, it means proud. It goes on in verse 17. I'm going to keep reading here. It says, so Azariah the priest went in after him. You have to understand, kings weren't supposed to go in to the temple. It wasn't their duty. It was the priest's duty. And he knew that. He knew the, the structure. He knew the order. And he absolutely rebelled against it and did his own thing. And it says in verse 18, And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. God said, out, or, Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry, there we go again, anger, with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. Interestingly enough, leprosy represented judgment in the Old Testament. But what ultimately was God doing? God was actually revealing Uzziah's heart. <laughs> he just didn't like what he saw. And instead of owning it, dealing with it, and moving on, he couldn't. So I want you to understand a very simple thought today in your life as you are passionately pursuing God. Pride has to die before you have a fresh vision of Jesus. It's that simple. Pride has to die. And for all of us, it's different. I know exactly what it was for me 22 years ago. But you have to understand, pride has to die in order for you to have a fresh revelation of Jesus. But when pride dies, that fresh vision will come. And it's that fresh vision that will reignite the passion that you have for God. And it'll change from treating God as common to treating God as absolutely extraordinary. It'll change your perspective. So what's the greatest hindrance to a passionate pursuit of God? It's pride. What's the answer? Humility. I want to just end with the, looking at Paul's life. It says in Philippians chapter 3, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. What is he basically saying? Here's my list of all the things that I was awesome at. And then verse 7 comes, and it says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Hmm. Paul's life mission, Paul's success of Christ's mission, and sorry, Paul's life mission prior to coming to Christ literally meant nothing. But after that moment, the only thing that mattered to Paul was that he had a deep, intimate relationship with God, that he passionately pursued him, and that he passionately pursued his mission while he lived on the earth. I want to go on to verse 12 and 14. It says, not that I've already attained, 
or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which, uh, for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 1996 Olympics 100-meter dash, the women's 100-meter dash, there was two athletes that were expected to compete for this gold medal. Two that stood out, Merlene Audie from Jamaica, Gail Devers from uh, United States of America, and it was hyped. I'm just glad that the boys won a week later on the Saturday night with Donovan Bailey. That was awesome. But the whole hype was around Gail Devers versus Merlene Audie. And what was interesting is it took almost 20 minutes to determine who won the race because it was a photo finish. And there's pictures of that race where you see Gail Devers leaning so far forward like she's almost going to just fall over and tumble across the finish line. But it was her lean that won the race. It wasn't her race that won the race. It was the lean that won the race. So we make a choice every single day to lean towards something. And I want you to understand, you've got to pick the right thing. For the first 22 years of my life, I leaned towards religion. Got me nowhere. The last 22 years of my life, yes, you can figure out my age from that. The last 22 years of my life, I've leaned towards a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. First 22 years, I lived disappointment. Last 22 years... I live excitement because he's awesome. So what's the upward call? What's he talking about here in verse 14? Well, you go back to verse 10 and he gives it all away. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. I just want to know him. I don't even care what I get to do for him. I don't care what ministry he's called me to. I just want to know him. I just want to know him. That's the goal. When Jesus ran his race on the earth, you were his prize. You were why he lived. You were why he came. You were why he died and rose again. When he was on that cross, he just didn't think of the people that were standing in front of him at the foot of the cross. He was thinking of you and me. We are his prize. Now he's handing us the baton with the hopes that he becomes our prize. I don't want Jesus to be common. I don't. I don't want to treat him with indifference or complacency or think that just because I've been here for 27,000 years in my walk with God that somehow God's going to favor me because I've been here for so long. Nope, that's not how God works. God is attracted to people that are attracted to him. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.